Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Carl Hyacin, whose latest novel is Razor Girl. Recent novels include Star Island, Skinny Dip, Nature Girl, Bad Monkey. There are 14 novels in all, plus two early collaborations five young adult novels, two nonfiction books. Carl Hyacin has been a columnist at the Miami Herald since 1985 and goes back even further working for the newspaper. Hoot and Striptease have become films, and Striptease actually has a reputation. <laughs> but first, let's talk a little about Razor Girl. The, I guess, eponymous name is about a woman who uses a razor to um, shave parts of her body while getting into car crashes. Now, I understand this is actually based on something real? Yeah. It was a very real car accident that happened down in the Florida Keys a few years ago that... Um, even made the papers, and my uh, my oldest son had sent me a clipping about it, and it was about a car accident. A woman was doing some personal grooming while she was driving down U.S. Highway 1 at high speeds and hit a car full of tourists. Nobody was hurt, but you always hear about texting while driving. You don't often hear about shaving while driving, especially shaving. Is that Miami Herald, in, in our own family-friendly way, called it... Uh, Shaving her bikini area was the way we described it in the newspaper. Obviously, it was a strange enough story that I had to save it and try to figure out if I was ever going to get it into a novel and how could I ever improve upon it for the purposes of satire because it was almost too perfect anyway. So I just finally decided to, um, just for the hell of it, start the novel that way. And, of course, in the real life, it was an honest-to-God accident, but in, in the book, it's not. It's a staged accident and the woman who's driving who is the razor girl sort of becomes a, a big character in the book and I ended up liking her a lot her name was Mary Mansfield she called herself uh, she's a, a something of a force of nature and I liked her the more the book went on she's one of those characters that kept surprising me her job was a uh, committing a criminal act but she was very proud of how good a drive you have to be a good driver to stage accidents we it's an old cottage industry in Florida for the insurance scams and you have to be really good at doing it so you don't get hurt and you don't hurt anybody and she was very proud of that and she considered this, herself more of a performance artist than a scammer because her job was to dazzle the male drivers who she struck when they would walk back to the car and see her with her razor in a state of personal grooming and I just said what the heck let's start the book that way and see where it goes well, when you say let's start the book and see where it goes for instance uh, Andrew Yancey was in your previous novel right. Bad Monkey right did you know he was going to be there sure when you go into it, what exactly are you starting with? <laughs> I usually start with the characters. I knew I was bringing Yancey back. I'd never done it before, have the same protagonist in consecutive novels. But I liked him, and he was this 
an ex-cop who's now sort of a beleaguered restaurant inspector down in the Keys. And I like the setting. Key West is colorful. I lived a little part north of that, but that lower end of the Keys is still very colorful and still kind of Wild West. And I just was comfortable there, and I liked him. And I thought I'd give him another shot. You know, at the end of Bad Monkey, he's still sort of stuck in this job, you know, counting cockroach wings and, and, and writing citations. And, you know, I was one of the rare times I thought, why not bring him back? So I know I've got, I've got a pretty good list of characters, a pretty good cast in my head when I start. And I don't know what all of them are going to do all of the time. And I have a sort of a premise. It, it's sort of like going off the diving board, the high diving board. I mean, you know which direction you're going. You're not sure what it's going to look like when you hit the water. And that's sort of how I, I forge ahead with this stuff. And I know for creative writing teachers, this makes them cringe because I don't work from an outline. I think the outlines feel like handcuffs to me. I like to be able to change directions. And I like to, my characters to do different things if it's right, things that I don't have necessarily planned. But I don't have it plotted out. And I don't really know how it's going to end until I'm about two-thirds of the way through the manuscript, usually. That's usually the panic point. It becomes a puzzle, I guess, putting the pieces together and making sure characters show up where they're supposed to without it being you manipulating them. Yeah, and it does have to be at some point, or at least appear somewhat seamless. You want it to be as smooth as possible, but in your mind, of course, you're playing ahead I forget which great writer it was. When you're writing, it's like driving. You only see as far as your headlights let you see. And that's sort of how it is. So you don't know where there's a bend in the road necessarily. But at some point, you have to say, okay, we've got to bring all these people back onto the stage and finish up. What's the last act? What's it going to be? It's kind of stressful. I mean, I envy writers that can plot meticulously to the end and they know exactly and and I in my head kind of know if I could make a musical analogy I kind of know what the last chord is going to be and musicians will tell you they know how they want that last note it's like you know in the uh, day in the life the Beatles song the note that goes on forever well I'm sure that was in John Lennon's head when he was writing that somewhere that's where it's going to end and I think to some extent as a writer you you want to hit the right note at the end but you're not sure how you're going to get there So you kind of know exactly where each of these characters is going to wind up. You just don't know how to get there? Well, I know who's going to be standing at the end of the novel and who's not. (laughs) I know that. And I kind of know who they're going to be with. You know, sometimes, and and Elmore Leonard used to talk about this, sometimes you start out with great hopes for characters. With Razor Girl, you know, Mary Mansfield, the Razor Girl, the driver herself, I didn't know how long she was sort of going to be on stage, but I know I needed her to get the book started and... I thought she'd be fun to, you know, sort of collide with Yancey at some point. But I didn't know how she was going to hold up over time in the book. So as as Dutch Leonard used to say, sometimes you start with these great hopes for a character. And halfway through, you know, they're letting you down a little bit. They're not living up to their expectations. Then you got to make a move. You either got to get them out of there one way or another. Either, Either, you know, have them step in front of a bus or get on a plane or something because... I mean, he used to say, if they're boring me, I know they're boring the readers. And, and so you have to be on guard for that. And, and on the other hand, there are characters that you have sort of minimal hopes for, and they're kind of, you know, uh, smaller players in the whole thing. And all of a sudden, they start uh, doing and saying things that are very entertaining, or you think they're, and they bring an energy to the writing, and you want to keep them around. Well, when you say they start doing things, how does that process work for you? You're just writing, and suddenly... Wham! <laughs> it sounds horrible. It sounds really disorganized. <laughs> but uh, yeah, sometimes uh, you're working on. Let's. I'll just give you an example. You're working on a piece of dialogue, and you, you know, in your head, this you're trying to move it along from A to B, C to D, 
and all of a sudden something comes out of a character's mouth. Yes, it's coming out of your head, but unexpectedly, there it is on the page, and you think, and it opens another door. And then you play the what if game. Like, what if they go through that door? And what if that scene doesn't stop here and they go here? Or they get in the car and they go there. All of a sudden, their hands touch. Or all of a sudden, you know, something happens. And that's the great fun of it. Now, managing it all, I mean, I always say it's like herding cats with my characters. They get out of control, and I have to sort of, okay, I'm losing track of this. When there's a lot that goes on in my novels, and it's not that I'm my mind works in any kind of special intricate way it's a total lack of discipline I just they start going off and I've got to you know rope them all in at the end but the important thing is you always want them to be interesting I think books are as interesting as the characters are you can have the 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 most sophisticated clever plot in the world but if you have wooden uninteresting characters it doesn't matter no you know people aren't going to enjoy the book as much and when people go to the movies, they remember the characters they see on the screen and the the actors playing those characters, you know, because that's who we remember in our lives. We remember people for their personalities, for what they say, what they do. We don't necessarily live our lives by any plot line. So the, the books kind of reflect that. And again, if I was more organized and I was a little better at, at, at plotting, um, but I really trust the characters to do what's best for the book. Carl Hyacin, that brings up several areas, like the character of Blister's wife, <laughs> who's a minor character. Blister is one of the bad guys. Yeah. The wife didn't necessarily have to be there. Is she one who you suddenly go, I like this woman? Let me backtrack a second and a little bit about him, then you understand the wife. There's a character in this book who is the star of a red-hot, redneck reality TV show. Like Duck Dynasty. Very much like Duck Dynasty, and it aspires to be the neck dust. And that was always there. That was always there, and his name is Buck Nance. As we know, there's sort of an epidemic of redneck reality shows right now for some reason in this country. And I wrote this long before the Trump candidacy got going. I started this book. Buck and his brothers are supposed to be chicken farmers on this TV show, and they're not. They were in a bad accordion band from Wisconsin, and they just had the right beards, and they kind of got drafted into the job. And they actually have to have coaches to teach them how to talk and act like what we perceive to be rednecks. And and it's not just a southern thing, even though I'm from the south, that that rednecks are everywhere. But anyway, so Buck has been sent to Key West to beef up the ratings down there, and he's been given some bad intelligence about what kind of jokes you tell in Key West, Florida, because it's a very diverse place, and diversity is not his strong suit. So he's on the run now in Key West, and he runs into this guy, Blister, who is a fanatical fan of the show, and he is a real hardcore guy, and he worships Buck, he worships the show, and the same hate and bigotry and, you know, casual sort of intolerance that Buck shows as on TV he's now faced with in real life. This guy is the is him in a mirror image, only the real deal. There's a lot of bad stuff there. Now, Blister is a just a two-bit burglar, bad burglar, break-in artist. He's, you know, and he's got the woman with him and she stays with him and she tries to keep him on the road, but she's, you know, she kind of knows his faults and but she I wanted him to have somebody to go home to and she's well aware of his shortcomings. He breaks into these places. He brings home a 40-inch TV, and he's busted the DVR in the process of burglarizing the... And she's forgiving of all of this up to a point, up to a certain point. And she's not looking to to be an ex-Kardashian. I think to see a character, you sometimes need to see the relationships. And this is a woman, they, they rode to a Key West together on a stolen Harley. For better or for worse, she's invested her heart in this guy. 
And so once you get to that point, then the character kind of just builds from there and you decide what you're going to do with it. Right. Your mission is always, you don't want your characters to be out of central casting. You don't want them to, to see just what you think they'd say if they were in that rental apartment where you first see them in Razor Girl, and it's a mess, and they have a, a pet mongoose that Blisters bought because someone told him it was a mink, and he's not smart enough to know the difference. He thinks it's a big money thing. So he's got a mongoose that's out of control, and she's had it with the mongoose. You know, I try to create scenes that you probably would never see, but that doesn't mean they aren't out there. But it would be easy in central casting to make her just some you know, dim bulb who, chain smoke and dim bulb who puts up with this stuff. But you, you want to give her more dimensions because in real life people have lots of dimensions. And and so, yeah, you should then see what she says, see what she does. And, and sometimes, wait a minute, she's not, we're not done with her. There's one more thing she needs to do in this book uh, about her relationship, you know. I mean, that's how the mind, my mind works. And again, it gets a little frantic when you're trying to to get it all together and make it make sense and I you know I I work very hard I mean these chapters go through a lot of there's a lot of rereading editing dialogue I mean there's a lot of stuff that goes into a single line sometimes as you know I mean it's just something if you're writing humor in particular one wrong adjective and it's not a funny sentence anymore The, 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 the beat can be off you know just by one and it's not funny anymore do you instinctively know what's funny do you have to have somebody read it no, I don't have anybody read it. My editors, you know, I send bunches of chapters in, but it's more conceptual sort of editing. Where's this character going? How's the pacing? Because I like the books to be very fast-paced. It's just, I guess, my newspaper background. You just yeah, write fast. I want people turning the pages. Those are things we talk about. But in terms of, is this line work or not, you're going by instinct. Does it work? Is it by the 10th time you read something, it, it ain't that funny. I, mean, I don't care who wrote it. Um, right. So... I have to guard against saying, you know, it's not working. And then, so at the end of when I get the full manuscript together, my wife will read it, my agent will read it, and, and, and my editor reads it, of course. So, and I'll get some feedback from all, but those are really the only people. My editor will usually say, look, I don't think that scene works, or I think, more frequently, I think you went a little too far, and that's a danger. I, I mean, where I just took it like one step too far. And he'll say things like, can you look at that again for me just to see what you think? And I know what he's saying there. It's like, dial it down. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of elements to the book. Both of them seem like fiction, and I suspect that both of them come directly from your work as a reporter. One is the story of the Gambian pouch rat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This giant rat imported as a pet that got loose. Yeah, no, those are real. When I was living in the Keys, uh, the papers would occasionally have little feature stories saying that somebody spotted one. You know, I mean, people were on the lookout for these giant Gambian pouch rats. They're not native to the United States, obviously from Gambia, Senegal, Morocco. But they grow up to nine pounds. In my twisted world, the whole idea of a nine-pound rat is almost irresistible. The idea that you could even have something like that or that they were being at one time imported as pets. I mean, think about the mentality. Oh, that's a great idea. This is what America needs. Everybody wants a nine-pound rat on a leash. This actually occurred to somebody, and they were bringing these things in back in the 70s. Then they discovered that they carry a pretty dreadful disease, and so the government shut down said, no, you can't bring any more Gambian pouch rats in. But there was a guy in the Keys that had been breeding them, hopefully optimistically, for the pet trade. And 
just is the same thing that happened with the pythons. He just, oh, I can't do that anymore. So he just let them go. On a, I, I, I call Grassy Key, which is near Marathon in the Lower Keys. And ever since then, and they went in and they tried to find these things, and nobody had any luck. They couldn't exterminate them. So occasionally you'll see there's a sighting of a giant Gambian pouch rat. And I saved this clipping. And, and because Yancey is in the restaurant inspection business now, he's on the road patrol, and he's, I just thought that would be a, a great adversary for him to be called to a restaurant and you know be in there doing his normal restaurant inspection and come face to face with a nine pound rodent that's it was cinematic there was it was metaphorical it was all the things I look for and, and plus I just like the idea of nature in all my novels there's some grotesque manifestation of what nature does in Florida just like we have the pythons let's let's put a few Gambian pouch rats in this novel and even better the fact that they're real that brings up the question, do you have a file of these clippings that you can go look at, or was the Gambian pouch rat just kind of sitting in the back of your head through three or four books? I mean, I had somewhere clippings on it, but I've also, living in the Keys, I've been reading about it, and so what I did, that one was sort of in the back of my mind. I'm sure I've got the clipping. I don't have any organized system. They're on cork boards here and there. Mm. So then what I did was I said, well, I'm going to Google and see if they're still around. You know, because they I, are, and they I, are. I Googled. You Google. That's you now. Yeah, now you sleep with the lights on after you Google it. Google images and giant Gambian pouch rat. The first image that comes up: three things in the image: a guy, a big rat, and a pitchfork. And that's all you need to know. And I thought, okay, you know, bingo, gold mine. Some things I get sent in the mail, and I'll stick them in a file, or I'll stick them somewhere. And others I'll just put up on a cork board. And I'll try to figure out, okay, how? You know, and it hangs around some, like you said, sometimes for two or three books where I'm, look, it'll just be a headline. And I'll think, okay, maybe that'll work, or maybe it's already good enough and I can't improve upon it. You know what I mean? Some things don't make the cut because I just don't know how to make them any better than they, they really were in true life. Well, at that point, you've got your column. Yeah, I got the column. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and then this, you know, there's no shortage of material there. I, I just do it once a week for the Herald still, and, um, kind of alternate between a Florida column and a national column because it's syndicated, so I try to mix it up a little bit. And this year, particularly in the year of this election nonsense, uh, there's no shortage. And, you know, we have now, we have Zika mosquitoes, we have toxic algae in Florida. I mean, it just never stops. There's just an abundance of material. Another element that is real, I would assume, is the idea that as global warming washes away beaches, people import sand. And I know that's true because I know they've been doing it at Waikiki for years. Yeah. I have a character in this book who eventually collides with Nancy as well. And in Florida, the, the euphemism they call this industry is beach renourishment. Renourishment. I love that. We have regular erosion, we have storms, and every time there's a big northeaster in the wintertime, it takes out a bunch of beachfront. And that's prime real estate, and it's also a prime magnet for tourists. So when somebody's beach starts disappearing, they become desperate. Where do we get another beach? This is our great human, the human arrogance when it comes to dealing with nature is that we can somehow conquer this. And it isn't. It's a cycle. So, But it's one of the greatest gigs you can get because if you're in the beach renourishment business, it never ends. Oh, here, here's your new beach. And then a year later, they'll call you again. They do it two ways in Florida. They dredge up. They put these big dredges offshore and they dredge up sand offshore. And it's very bad for the environment. It puts silt on the reefs, kills fish. And then they pump it back on shore. And it's not necessarily 
as lovely underfoot as uh, as the natural beach would be because it's grainier and bigger. But that's one way. The other thing, for, for years, they would send barges over to the Bahamas. They have beautiful sand in the Bahamas, and they had a, a government that's happy to sell you the sand, and then they truck it back, and they'll put it on, and again, it'll get all washed away. Uh, so this guy in the book, he sees this as an opportunity, and he gets some sand, very questionable sand from a guy who's running a rock pit out in western Dade County. And we have these gigantic, deep, deep rock pits that they, and, and so he got some granulated stuff that looked pretty good. He thought he'd save some money, and he put it out on a beach that had eroded. And, and again, the, everybody's beach is shrinking because of climate change. And this beach happened to go belong to a resort owned by the mafia, which, again, actually in real life has some serious Florida investments. But the customers and the guests at the hotel were were running back into the lobby with bleeding feet because the beach, it wasn't a good sand. It was low-quality sand, and it had some glass in it and other things. So they became very upset that they had paid a lot of money for a beach to, of this caliber, and they hire the Razor Girl to, to stage a crash with the guy, the, the beach renourishment guy. So that's how the setup is. But his scheme to get out of this is, okay, listen, I know I put in a bad beach, and I'll get you, uh, you don't have to kill me, I'll get you a brand new beach, and I've got a pipeline to Cuba. The Castro brothers are going to sell me some beach. Okay, so breaking it down just a little bit, you know that they're doing this in real life. Yeah. And obviously, at that point, you're thinking, what about a bad beach? Or did a bad beach like that exist, and um, are there beaches in Havana, which would import, and are there pink beaches? I mean, Yeah, there's beautiful beaches in Cuba, yeah, and yeah. I've been there, and they're gorgeous. I don't know that they would do business with the United <laughs> States, but this guy, yeah. uh, you know, scammers, they're always thinking ahead, and they think, why not? All he's going to sell me is a few cubic tons of sand. They've got hundreds of miles of gorgeous coastline in Cuba. Why not? But that's how a scammer would think. But, yeah, there have been cases where beaches have been, quote, renourished, and, and some of them public beaches, and people go down, and, and you literally need to wear, you know, like fireman's boots to walk on it. And there have been complaints about the quality and the, and the fineness of the sand and where it was dredged from. And uh, I just took that to the extreme, of course, as I do with all the books. But, but yeah, I mean, and you can tell if you're from Florida, spend any time in Florida. If you've been on a natural beach, it's one thing. You've had the experience of walking down a beach and all of a sudden it really feels like you're on some sort of rice surface because it, it isn't natural. It was, it's not a natural beach. Guess what? Carl Hyacin, are you using some of this material from your own columns? Are you saving it? I mean, do you think in terms of, okay, this is column material, this is book material? I don't think like that. I mean, the column is, is more uh, usually reactive to something that's happened in the news. It tends to be topical, probably a little more overtly political. Once in a while, it'll be, there'll be something weird that happens, and I'll do a whole column on it, and it'll also turn up in a book, but not that often. Years ago, there was a book I did called Native Tongue, and there's a, a dolphin exhibit where people had been swimming with the dolphins, which they allow in Florida. A dolphin got uh, romantically interested in a and somebody who fell into the tank in this book and, and, how do I put this, romanced him to death. I had written a column about uh, uh, something that was going on in Florida where dolphins were kind of rebelling against this whole letting the tourists swim with them, and they were exhibiting romantic manifestations when female swimmers were in there with them, and they had to shut down some of these exhibits because the <laughs> dolphins dolphins were, sh were doing tricks that they were not supposed to be doing. <laughs> 
And so I, I had written a column about that, and so I, but that was too good. So I said, yeah, this is going into a novel for sure, because the whole idea, again, the human arrogance of that this is going to be the highlight of a dolphin's day is when a bunch of tourists are going to jump in a little fake lagoon with him and, and hang on to his dorsal fin and get dragged around in a circle. These dolphins are brains bigger than we do. So I just figured it was, a, it was the dolphin's revenge. But that was a case where I said, no, no, that's going into a book too. But usually... Especially in a year like this, which is an election year, and we've, and we've got so much other stuff going on that um, by the time you react to it and write the column, you know, book the whole writing right. process takes longer. It may not even be timely or topical by the time I get around to it in a novel. Carl Hyacin, the most recent column I saw yesterday was on Rick Scott and Zika. Yeah. Rick Scott appears to me to be rather than a real person, a Carl Hyacin invention. I mean, You've got an entire state sinking under the weight of climate change, and your governor denies that it's happening. Not only denies that it's happening, he's, he has forbidden anybody on his staff or any state agency from using the term climate change or global warming or anything. Now, he denies this, but reporters who have talked to the people who are supposedly you know, the, the, his cutting-edge people. There's not a memo or an email or anything that uses this phrase because, you know, remember, this guy this is a guy that was elected spending $74 million of his own money. Ironically, he got in the healthcare business from running a company that got the, the biggest fine for Medicare fraud in the history of Medicare. Now, that's saying something. There's so many ironies, and he spends all his time ranting against federal government is to blame for Zika. The federal government is to blame for the toxic algae in our water. It's all this. So to me, and now if climate change doesn't exist, Miami Beach on a high tide, parts of the neighborhoods are underwater. Fort Lauderdale Beach, A1A, goes underwater on certain tides. The, the ocean is is making more progress than than he's willing to admit. So yeah, in a way, is he is a character out of somebody's novel. I wish... For because I care about Florida so much, and I was born and raised there, and my family's there, and my, you know, everybody I care about is down there. So I, on the one hand, as a writer, a guy like Scott gives you tremendous material for a column and everything else. But as a citizen and somebody that worries about the future of not only Florida but the whole planet, it's uh, unsettling to think that he has as much control. I mean, the whole, the idea that mosquitoes are willingly going to stay within a 10 block area don't worry bring your family down this is the only place they are you know i mean that was the most hilarious press it's not a funny subject because it's a serious disease but to have the map up there and showing the delineation of where this is just one small neighborhood you have to and of course then it shows up in south beach why because they're mosquitoes they fly wherever they want to and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them i mean it's scary, but you, you, but in Florida, it's always been about the PR spin and what, whatever you do, don't scare the tourists. At the press conference, when he's showing these slides, were people kind of laughing? No, no. Every, I mean, I think maybe inside they were laughing. They were trying to get information, and they, he had a federal official with him he usually takes. And, um, but they give the statistics like they've, they've trapped and tested however many thousands of mosquitoes. Now just think about this for a minute. It's almost like a Monty Python movie. A mosquito trap, first of all, is in itself. You're only getting a tiny fraction of mosquitoes. Then they're saying they've tested so many thousands. How do you individually take out each mosquito 
and te- now think about this. They're just the logistics is silly. It, of course they're not. But they're, again, trying to calm the public down. But it's sort of like the minister of silly walks, the great John Cleese character uh, from Monty Python. That's sort of what we're dealing with every day. And in Florida, it's the minister of silly words. People vote for these clowns. I mean, Rubio is running again and will probably win. I don't know if he's going to win, but he's running again after he said that he hated the job and didn't want to do it anymore, and and Senate was basically useless, and he never showed up. He was talked into running again. It's amazing. And now he won't rule out running for president again in four years. So basically, he just wants a platform until the next presidential run. He's anticipating the, the loss of Donald Trump who he, he's, this is typical Marco, he won't back off of his statement during the primaries that Trump is a con man, but we should vote for him anyway. He's supporting him anyway. That shows you his true patriotism and love of the country. Let's elect a con man. And that's his position because that's Marco. He wants it both ways. And now I wrote a column about one of his problem now with dealing with when Trump comes to Florida and campaign, uh, you know, he wouldn't go to the convention Rubio wouldn't but he did he sent a videotape so he wants it like both ways so now he'll be watching the polls and as the if the polls get close he'll actually get up on stage with Donald Trump is my prediction if if Trump continues to be behind and it looks like he's losing Rubio will uh, will be busy that day and won't be available for any photo ops or anything I mean he'll it, Trump is kind of if he's as toxic as he as he has been he won't show up but if he starts looking like he's got a chance Mark will be up there no matter how emasculated and humiliated he was during the debates he'll put it all aside and shake his hand and, and because that's he's just the ultimate opportunist and but you're right it, here he is again and uh, it's going to be a close race and he could easily win a seat back after announcing months ago that he didn't like the senate and he really he really didn't want to like the job how popular is scott uh, Scott is in the polls. He's not very popular, but he ran against a very weak candidate for for re-election, and he's got a lot of money. And he's going to run for the Senate in a couple of years. As soon as he gets out, he'll be running for the Senate. He's already collecting big money from private interests like Big Sugar, the sugar industry in Florida, all the usual suspects that you'd think. Uh, and he's already stockpiling on that. So it, to him, it's all about the money. He's got no charisma, no personality, or anything. But you get enough money. I mean, they they voted for him the first time, which was quite astonishing. And people say, you well, you can't buy elections. Look at what happened to Jeb Bush in the primaries here. I mean, he had his hundred ten million dollar war chest, and he got he got his ass kicked by Trump. But Scott had seventy four million of his own money. That all came down to buying an election. And and so who knows? I mean. It's one of the reasons I keep writing the column because every time I think, oh, you know what, I've been doing this so long. Why don't I just knock it off and just work on the books? And then somebody like Rick Scott shows up. And you can't, if you're a citizen with a conscience, you know, uh, you know, retreat from that. You know, I've got, I knew I was going to have have somebody to write about this. Somebody has to write about it. Have you actually had any conversations with either Mar- Marco Rubio or Rick Scott? No, no, I haven't. I don't, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't tend to net get to know these guys, and I don't hang with them, and I don't, you know, I, I, as a columnist, as an op-ed columnist, I judge them on what they say in public to the public because it, let's say one of them says, okay, I, I can explain to you why I did that. Let's go have lunch or let's go have a drink, and I'll tell you what's really going on. What good is that? to regular citizens who are just seeing the press conference. You have to judge them as a columnist on what they do and say publicly and the votes they make. Rubio flew all the way back to Washington, 
to vote against a bill that would have prevented people on the terrorist watch list from buying AR-15s. He flew back to Washington to vote against that bill because he's in the NRA's pocket. You know, suppose I get a call saying he wants to talk to you and explain to you why he did that. I don't need an explanation. This is what he did at a time when Americans are getting slaughtered on a regular basis by lunatics with AR-15s. So what is your justification? You can't get on an airplane, but you can walk into a gun shop and buy this killing machine, this cop-killing machine. To me, I don't need to talk to him about that. He's not going to talk to me anyway. But my point is there are journalists that sort of get to know them, and they have to, and they, just like a sports writer gets, has to get to know the guys on the team, write about them. But my job is to write from the point of view of a citizen that is just watching what they do and what they say and making a judgment about it because that's what all the voters have to do. They're getting the impact of it. So I don't want to be their friends. I don't want to get invited out. You know, I have no interest in any deep insight. If they're not going to share it with all the people, then don't share it with me. It reminds me of something that Molly Ivins once said. She said, it doesn't matter if George W. Bush is a good guy or not. His policies kill people. That's exactly right. Some of these people are very charming. That's how they get elected. And actually, by all accounts, George W. Is a, is a nice guy. Nobody ever said he's a monster. But you're right. You make a decision, and Arlington starts filling up with soldiers from Iraq. So that's what matters, not whether he's a nice guy or he's fun to play golf with. You know, who gives a rat's ass? A lot of them are nice guys. I mean, Trump in person can be fairly funny and charming, I'm you told. you met him. Uh, I met him twice, but I haven't spent hardly any time. It was a handshake. It was some time ago at the after party for the premiere of Strip Tease in New York. <laughs> at the Rainbow Room is the first time I met him. He was standing in line, and the guy next to him in line, I mean, I didn't know anybody. They had the premiere for the movie at the Zig Field, and it was the first time a book of mine had been made into a, a movie. So I went, and I'm going through the line. I mean, I knew who he was. I, think. I was much more excited to meet the guy next to him in line. The guy next to him was Meatloaf. Hi, Mr. Hum. Who cares? But there's Meatloaf. And the best part was that... That's how he introduces himself. So you don't know whether to say, hey, Meat, or hey, Mr. Loaf. I was, I was more flustered meeting Meat Loaf than I was Donald Trump. So you just shook his hand and blah, blah, blah. I, I, just, I just moved yeah. down the line. Yeah, yeah I, was, I didn't even spend any time with him. So, I mean, but he, that was, those are the days of he'd show up at every party like that. And he probably still would if he weren't running for president. I mean, sometimes after they leave office, I mean, I mean, like I know I've known Bob Graham for years, but I mean, I also wrote about him when he was senator and governor and everything else. But he has been fighting for integrity in government for a long time. He's got the Graham Center at Gainesville. I stay in touch with him occasionally, but he's not running for office. He's a private citizen. That's different than somebody who's got a stake in talking to you as a journalist, who's got an agenda in speaking with you as a journalist. When he was in office, I. I probably maybe talk to him twice it was just you know in passing or seeing him somewhere when they don't have anything at stake and you actually do meet them obviously i'm generalizing here but do you find a huge gap between who they are and who they appeared to be when you've met these ex-politicians no 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 not really i mean in the, my experience again i'm not the most social person I'll give you an example. Jeb Bush was, and his family have been very interested in children's literacy issues for a long time. So years ago, after he was governor, I wrote, I was very tough on it. We agreed on almost nothing when he was governor. I was writing my columns, the same thing. But his family called up and said, would you come to an event for children's literature and read from one of your books? And 
uh, and, and talk. And I said, I'm happy to do that for kids. He's a nice guy, and, and we're the same age, and we were both baseball fans when we were kids, and both of our moms threw out all our baseball cards as soon as we went to college. So we laughed about stuff like that. That was different. Flash forward years, and now he's going to run for president, and all during the primary season, I certainly wrote about his weaknesses and didn't pull any punches. And I tried to express the frustration of a lot of voters in Florida who had expected him to do better and voted. I mean, I was astonished at how poorly he did and how weak he came off against Trump. But the point is, it had no effect on what I wrote. I mean, I was still not getting invited to any any barbecues in Texas or anything, and I don't want to be. I mean, this is just not what journalists should be doing. You've been with the Miami Herald since you first got out of college. And well, it was actually, it was my second newspaper. I was at a paper in Central Florida for about two and a half years, so I joined the paper when I was 22 or 23 in 1976. Okay. Yeah. And then you became a columnist 30 years ago. Newspapers have gone through changes. When you look at a paper like the Herald, it looks as if right now the Washington Post and New York Times have made the transition fairly well to to the online world. But for papers that are more local, like Miami Herald, is there a future? There desperately needs to be for the readers who depend on information to, to move democracy forward. I mean, if local reporting is what I fear most for, and I fear for not Certainly just the Herald, happened. everywhere, where we cut back the newsroom staff so much, and all these government, I don't know how many municipalities there are in like the Miami-Dade County area, there's probably over 60, and each of them has meetings and zoning boards and decisions are made about people's lives and what's being built here and what's being paved there. We can't, we don't have enough reporters to cover a fraction of those. So this is a field day for crooked politicians, lobbyists, special interests, and now we don't find out about the shenanigans until a prosecutor tells us. In the old days, we'd be writing about it, and then a prosecutor would get interested. That's happening all over the country, and that's what, the, to me, is the most critical part about the shrinking of the newsroom. Is Oh, it's great to go online, but you have to have warm bodies, boots on the ground, to go out and cover news that's essential for even a, a, a city or a county or a village or any, any government. You have to have someone there to cover it who... Uh, knows what question to ask and who gets the information either by online or in the paper to the voters. That's what I fear the most for. I mean, the big problem, and even with the Times and the Washington Post and, and the Journal have all, you know, they've big operations and they, and, and all papers have their own. But right now the problem is the business model is that the ads that are being bought online cost a lot less than a big full-page ad from a Chevrolet dealership in a newspaper. So the business model is that, yeah, you can sell a lot of ads online, but you need to sell a ton of ads to make the same money that you did with one big ad in a printed newspaper. You have your subscriptions now online and, and all that, but it was the advertising where papers made all their money, not subscriptions. So the business model is still not working that great, even for the bigger newspapers. You worry about that because, you know, some newspapers are publishing only three days a week now or four days a week. They've cut back in terms of what lands on your front lawn in the morning for people who still get a daily newspaper. All that scares me, not just because I think it's an important business. I think it's essential to a functioning and informed democracy to know what's going on even in your neighborhood. You need 
reporters. You, you can't do it online because a lot of the information you get online, even if somebody's sitting in a meeting is on their iPad saying, oh, they just voted to do this, they may not know that that's not really what they voted for. They right. voted for just the opposite, and they've obscured it with language. I mean, there's a lot of sneaky ways to get things done, and unless you've got somebody experienced who knows what's going on and who recognizes the lobbyists that are signaling to the city commissioners on how to vote... Unless you have someone in the room that knows that's going on, you're going to get bamboozled and somebody's getting screwed. Well, that's been the case certainly in the small towns and around the Bay Area, even before when the Chronicle covered the city, yep. but not necessarily Corte Madera, El Cerrito, or little places, Pleasanton. Because how am I going to know? I mean, for instance, you know, zoning board is where a lot of this comes down. Sure. And you can vote for a commissioner, but how do you know? You don't know, and this is also the special interests that have the money to hire the lobbyists are very smart. They're aware that there's no reporter in the room, and they're aware that the people who show up to protest, let's say you're going to put a Walmart where there's a meadow right now, and there are going to be people, you know, that are going to show up to put. They also know that those are working people, and that after about 11 o'clock at night, they're going to leave the meeting because they have to go home because they've got to get up and work the next day. So the vote on that issue will happen about 11.30 or midnight, always the case, when nobody's in the room, just the lobbyists and just the commissioners, and all of a sudden it gets done, and everybody finds out the next day. And that happens everywhere. It's just how deals get done. But if you don't have someone that can see all that, see that whole little theater going on, all you know is that you wake up one day and there's bulldozers in the meadow. Carl Hyacin, a couple of questions about... Trump. In a recent column, you said that Trump was nicknamed El Payaso, the clown in Mexico. Yeah, I read that after he made the remarks he made about the Mexican immigrants being rapists and terrible people, that some of the press down there had sort of and dubbed him. I think that's one of the nicer nicknames, if you want the truth. And then he shows up to meet with the president. Now the poor the guy that invited him down is getting crucified. His political right. future is done, basically, the president. He uh, just for having Trump there, it did way more damage <laughs> to him than it did to Trump. You know, he is, he is a Tom Wolfe creation in a way. I mean, uh, that character in fiction, when a reality stars, is now have the Republican nomination. I mean, when I wrote Razor Girl, and I, you know, and there's this sort of whole stuff about the Duck Dynasty nation and about the subtext and the code for some of the things that some, some of the, the people that get into that stuff this, again, was just in the very early phases of the Trump president. I wasn't thinking about it. And yet, here you go this summer. This is in the United States of America in the year 2016, and you turn on the Republican National Convention, and one of the kickoff speakers is an actor from Duck Dynasty. I mean, it was like, again, I'm hitting myself in the head going, why didn't I think of this? I, I didn't have any of my characters address the National Republican Convention in the book. <laughs> but it's a case of, you know, where reality just completely surpasses a satirical invention. And part of you just has to laugh about it, but part of you wants to cry about it as well. Is this, is this really where we've come as a democracy? <laughs> All these years, the, the state of the republic is... This is the national agenda. This is the forum that we're that we're all engaged, and this is a, a serious, dangerous world we live in. You know, there's a clown show going on. The Democrats are just as frustrated. Many of them. I mean, are these two people really the best and the brightest that we can put on this very, very important stage right now? That's where you're at. The reaction to that is either total despair, 
or you know you you can in my case the therapy of writing about it and and having the privilege of the newspaper come but also in the novel sort of addressing some of these themes part of it is the surrealism transcends anything in a Carl Hyacin novel I have trouble imagining somebody getting away with writing a novel about (laughs) the past year. Oh, yeah. I mean, there will be books written, many, many, many books written about this, more than anyone will ever read about this political season, because by November, I mean, we're already nauseated by it. I can't imagine the people lining up at the bookstores to relive it after the election, however it turns out. Leave the f- fiction out of the. I even as a political prognosticator, you see the best minds on in in poli- in sort of political journalism and commentary. They were shaking there. They've all been shaking their heads. Nobody saw this coming. There's all kinds of analysis. This was this deep-seated resentment and this this uh, Trump speaks for a lot of people. The idea that he speaks for the common man is, by the way, hilarious. Uh, that this guy, who's as about an uncommon, pampered guy. And then here's a guy who had the bone spurs allegedly kept him out of Vietnam. So he's playing golf and he's playing tennis while John McCain is being tortured in a, in a POW camp in North Vietnam. And he has the nerve and the gall to say he's not a war hero. He's a war hero only because he was captured. I, I like people that were captured. Those are his exact words. No other candidate could get away with that and should get away with that. I don't care what you think of John McCain. That happened and he toughed it out. And he had a chance to get released from that POW camp because his father was an was a, a admiral, I believe. And he didn't, and he stayed there for five years. And, and this low life has the, has the audacity to say that's something. And he still survives as a candidate and then wins the nomination. That's phenomenal. That is something to think about. And I, my theory is real simple. It's not about dis, disgruntled middle America or disgruntled white America. He's on television. He's a reality TV star. My theory is that even one of the Kardashians could probably run for public office because there are some people, that's the most their brain can handle. I recognize him. I like him on TV. I'm going to vote for him. I don't care what he says, who he insults, specifically my intelligence. I know he's not going to build a wall. You know, I know he's not going to deport 11 million people because it's not humanly possible. But I'm going to vote for him anyway just because I like him. Okay, you know what? You get what you deserve. And it's very hard for the rest of us who, who kind of try to think that these are important times. And it, it might be nice to know where Syria was on a map and who's running ISIS, which he, Donald Trump couldn't tell you that. It might be nice to have somebody in the White House who knew these things or at least read more than 144 characters at a time. But if this is who they're going to elect, then, you know, that's what you get. Carl Hyacin. Now you've written Razor Girl. Have you started thinking about the next one? Yeah, I'm already working on another novel for kids. I kind of alternate between the books for young readers and the, the grown-up books now. And the kids are a great audience. And even at the book signings I'm doing, there's a lot of kids there usually. So I clean up my act a little bit for them. But, but um, they're a great audience, and they're politically savvy, and they're, they're passionate about the environment. It doesn't matter what part of the country I'm in. They've all... I think kids are born with this sort of innate fascination and love with nature and wild things, and they have a much more crystal sense of what's right and wrong than a lot of grown-ups I know. I mean, they see something happening, and right away they can tell you, no, no, that's wrong. We shouldn't be doing that. And you can put a room full of grown-ups in the room, and you don't get the same answer. Essentially, they are 
a little bit simpler plot-wise right. than your other books, but content in many ways is damn similar. <laughs> it is, and the voice, the narrative voice is pretty similar, and obviously when you have younger characters, plot lines are simpler, and they don't come into our, the, the novels with the same baggage and the same problems as my adult characters. They haven't had time to accumulate you know, three bad marriages yet at age 12. So, But it's liberating to write for that level, too. One final question. Um, only Hoot and Striptease have become films. A book like Razor Girl would work very well as a miniseries. Yeah, there's a couple of the books that are in development as miniseries now, and we'll see, you know, I've seen a couple of the pilot scripts, and we'll see how it goes. Cable, cable TV, some of the best writing, uh, is, some of the best screenwriters are now writing for cable TV. There's some great stuff, so I keep my fingers crossed, but it's Hollywood, you never know. It's hard work adapting these books, Richard. The books are not easy to adapt to the screen, big or small. So I have great sympathy for the screenwriters. I hope it works out, and if it doesn't, move on. Carl Hyacin's latest novel is Razor Girl. His Sunday columns can be found on the Miami Herald website and linked to his own website, carlhyacin.com. Special thanks to Elaine Petricelli and the folks at Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera, California, where this interview was conducted. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.